Steve Oster hanging out with the lovely Mary Goulet. Hello, Mary Goulet. Hello. Richie Ote. What's up, my brother? How's it going? Doing good, well? Good, good, good. White Way's uh, got it under control in the studio. Thank you for that, Wade. Kelly's got it under control back at headquarters. And here on Beyond Eight Figures, we do sit down with entrepreneurs who have either exited for more than $10 million uh, or currently run businesses that gross more than $10 million annually and get to the bottom of the tools and strategies and shortcuts and such things that allowed them to... Do what few entrepreneurs are able to do. Have so, we found a shortcut yet? I um, haven't heard a shortcut. You know what? I don't know if we found a shortcut necessarily so much as I think that we found a lot of really good strategies. Yes. Yeah. Is there a, such a thing? I there haven't is heard no, a shortcut yet. There is no overnight sensation. No. Like nothing at not all. For the, not for right? that comic club. It's true. You don't get to 10 million overnight. Although I will say um, if you're Jennifer Aniston and you want to figure out how to get to a million followers on Instagram... Uh, you just put up an account and you get to a million followers in five hours and 36 minutes. The new world record, like she actually actually landed in the Guinness Book of World Records. I didn't even know Guinness cared about such things, but there you go. Talk about the evolution of Do you see uh, the weird things book. they care about? I know, right? But seriously. So I, Instagram's not that weird, but. So all you have to do is be on Friends for 58 years or whatever it is and then open an Instagram account with all your buddies and you get to a million followers in five hours and however many minutes. Uh, Rebecca, how many uh, how many Instagram followers do you have at the moment, just out of curiosity? I am not on Instagram. <laughs> exactly. Sweet. It yes, has nothing right? to do with making money. It has nothing to do with it at all. All right. Let's, uh, let's... I, I will tell you, it has a lot to do with age. Mm. Uh, I'm, I, I'm 65 years old. And, and uh, you know, video and YouTube and Instagram, they're no friend of mine. Oh, man. You are not 65. That is <laughs> I a lie. I hear you. That, there, there's no way you're 65. You look fabulous. I, I feel like it nobody guesses that and that's kind of you to say but i i have to tell you you know i i mean i i'll i'll, I'll take an audio only interview over video <laughs> any day well fortunately you get both with us here and if uh, you guys haven't checked us out uh in terms of the video stuff that we do make sure you go on to beyond eight figures.com uh, and you can see some of the video we don't post them all but we do get a lot of them here on video and uh and we do post a good number of them at beyond8figures.com, so you can check out the video editions as well, and then, of course, in addition to the audio versions that you can find on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher and all the usual suspects for your favorite podcasts. And so today, we are fortunate to be able to be joined, well, on camera here, and of course, in the audio version as well, you can't really do one without the other, uh, by Rebecca Costa. And I want to just make sure I'm pronouncing the last name right. It's Costa, not Costa, right? Yes, that's correct. All right, sweet. I did it. Okay, so Rebecca, let's uh, let, let's do this and let's get this out of the way early. Uh, how do you meet the criteria for Beyond Eight Figures? Did you exit a business for more than $10 million or do you currently run a business that grosses more than $10 million annually? I exited a company. I actually sold uh, the second largest advertising and marketing firm in Silicon, in actually California, hmm. that was uh, working with technology firms to J. Walter Thompson. Yeah, and nice. That's how I exited. And J. Walter Thompson, of course, you know, was owned by WPP in yeah. uh, Europe. So I was fortunate to be able to do that. Yeah. So uh, are you able to share the specifics on that? Were you the sole owner? Did you have partners? What was the what was the structure of that? Of no, that I was business? a sole owner. Yeah, I, I kept it private. Uh, I owned 100 percent of the stock. Um, it, there's an interesting side story here. Please. Uh, I can't take 100 percent credit for selling it, but uh, 
when you know when whenever you have an exit strategy, you're, you're either pretty much going to go public or you're going to sell your company. Those are the two most likely uh, exit strategies, and it's important to have it in mind as to which one is going to be the most lucrative when you're planning to exit. For me, I had a service business, and service businesses don't generally do well trying to go public. So, um, and I wasn't big, I was never going to be big enough to, to be able to do that. So my alternative was to package the company for sale. Uh, if you're a sole proprietor and you're critical to running the business, it's very likely that they're going to extend a contract with you, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. you're going to get some money up front and then there's going to be a payout over time, three to five years generally is the window. And I didn't want to do that. I had recently been married, adopted two children, had three dogs, uh, chickens. I mean, I, I I was just I was full up, and I and I just wanted out at the highest possible price. And so uh, when they came to me, they said, "Look, but you know all this technology stuff. You were the first company to put up online banners, you know, and we don't really understand the web and what and 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 social media potentially was going to come down the pike and." And they really didn't have a tech arm. They were still, you know, cutting and pasting print ads, and uh, and so they wanted me to stick with the company for five years, and and I didn't want to do that. So um, I thought about it, and then you know one day I walked into my company and I sold my company to my three uh, executives that had been working for with me for five or ten years, mm. and uh, at no money down. Wow. <laughs> and I said, I've I've already done the deal. We know the amount of the sale. And I said, I got to take myself out of the picture. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to I'm going to sell you the company, and you have to pay me my money uh, that I've negotiated with Jay Walter. You've got to pay that to me in the next 24 months. I'm going to give you 24 months to close the deal without me, hmm. and and then you got to pay me when that deal's closed. And they did. Uh, J. Walter Thompson went for it. I had removed myself from the equation. J. Walter Thompson went for it. And my employees paid me out and. And since they got a higher price for the company, uh, they were able to buy condos on golf resorts and they were all happy. Mm. And uh, they got to own a company without putting any, any, you know, with no risk. Now, I took a little bit of a risk, but it was only for 24 months. And, and I was pretty sure Jay Walter wanted the company. So, you know, and we had already cemented the deal. It was just a matter of removing myself out of the equation. Interesting. So we need to take a, just a couple of steps backwards just to make sure everybody is really clear on this. So, the so the company that you sold, it was a well. It didn't start out as a digital agency. It sounds like it sort of morphed or at least had pieces of that as as things evolved. Well, sure, we were we were uh, headquartered in Silicon Valley, so we could see that most advertising was going to go digital. That mm -hmm. was the big market, mm -hmm. and WPP Group knew that, but they didn't have anybody that really understood what the web was. And uh, and what was going to happen to advertising and old and that the fact that old models weren't going to work anymore. So that was uh, was that your background then? You you had that career in advertising and marketing and so on, and you decided to open up your own your own firm. It was just take it take us through the embryonic stages. I'd been in product marketing for most of my life, and then I I wound up rising through the ranks to become a VP of marketing and technology. So I knew that the biggest problem was the tech guys didn't understand marketing, right? And the marketing people didn't understand technology. And that was my niche. Mm -hmm. I understood both. I mm -hmm. knew where technology was going and I knew how to, what a huge impact it was going to have on the media. You know, at yeah. that time, people didn't really understand the internet or the web. I mean, we're, you know, people were going, what? It's going to 
you know, what is it going to do? I mean, think about it. You know, this is like 20, 30 years ago. I mean, we didn't, we didn't really understand that everything was going to be revolutionized mm-hmm. and there would be no storefronts and everybody would want to order online. Yeah, That just is inconceivable. Just the same way that today people can't conceive of the fact that everything's going to be delivered to you by drones. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, let, let's get I into mean, some of the views. seem like toys, and we're we're still in that play uh, period. But uh, of course, you know, Amazon's moving really quickly to to do that. Yeah, we'll we'll get into the futurist side of the equation here uh, soon because that's a really interesting conversation. I want to make sure that we have. In the meantime, for those who want to understand how you did it, you did you start out then just simply as a sole proprietor? It sounds like you never raised a dime. I mean, you were 100% owner, so you, you never went out and, and raised any money, correct? I, I just want to make sure people understand how you well, grew to the point of being able to yeah, sell for $10 million yeah. plus. So where, where did that, it start? Those are fair questions, and they're important questions. So for me, I was single, and, uh, and I was a complete workaholic. I was working seven days a week, which really wasn't that unusual in the 70s and 80s in Silicon Valley. Every, you know, you'd go at 2 a.m., you'd, you'd drive by a a computer company and their entire parking lot was filled with cars. We were all just absolute maniacs because we were all, we were more mission driven than money driven. Everybody knew that that um, you know we were changing the world and the way that that uh, people would work and live. And uh, and so it was a, it was a different climate than you see today. Today people are very much worried about making a living and, and advancing, you know, as opposed to achievement. I, I separate success and achievement. I don't think they're the same thing and they should not be treated the same way. We were all concerned about achievement at that particular time. And uh, and I was very fortunate. I, I, I joined a couple of companies that went public and I had a lot of money in the bank. In the bank. And, and so one day I just walked in. I was a VP of marketing for a company called Terra Corporation that was a... Wait, you uh, can't... I'm sorry. Hold on, Rebecca. You can't just gloss over that. So... So you did have the benefit of being a part of a couple of companies that had gone public. So yep. you so you were able to cash out on a couple of those opportunities. So, yeah, I wasn't wealthy. I, I wasn't wealthy, but but also I didn't have any debt. Yeah. And and you know, freedom was really important to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean there's there's a little bit I, I'm I'm definitely more business than hippie, but there's a little bit of hippie in me. And mm-hmm. there was a little bit of me that said, you know, I, I really value my life and my time here on earth. And do I really want to spend it seven days a week working? And so, you know, once I had a little bit of money in the bank, I, I freedom became a really important aspect of my life, mm-hmm. of my life goal. And so one day I happened to be in town and I uh, was getting a bagel and I saw a guy that was an architect and he was putting a little sign out or for rent sign of the cutest little Spanish kind of house office thing that he had converted in downtown Los Gatos. And I went up and I said, well, how much you want for that office? And I don't know, he said I don't know, 500 bucks a month or something and I'll throw in utilities and mm-hmm. I have some drafting tables up there. And I said, you know, I, I think I'll take it. And so I, 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 I really had no idea at the time. I, I, I just felt like if I had an office, I'd have to do something. <laughs> That's <laughs> you know, you got a problem. That's office. Problem. That's <laughs> you yeah. know, so, so I thought that was kind of the start of it. So I got a desk and a coffee machine and then, mm-hmm. and, and I'd go there every day and I'd say, well, what do I think I'm good at? And my phone started ringing because a lot of people that I had worked with in these startups were now in other companies. And they knew my work and my track record. And this is what was important. I had a sterling track record of introducing 
products that people had never heard of before and didn't know why they even needed them. And so I started getting some phone calls and I picked up jobs here and there and pretty soon I needed help. And eventually I expanded to the point where, you know, I had hundreds of people work for me um, and I had a large company. And of course I had to move to a bigger skyscraper in downtown San Jose and so on and so forth. But mm-hmm. always in the back of my mind, you know, the, the thing that no one talks to you about is being a fa- No one wants to be a failure, but when you're, but there's a certain burden that comes with being a success with growing your company, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and that it's, it's like people that go into the restaurant business. It really sounds like a good idea, but you're going to be getting up at three in the morning, shopping for the freshest food. You, you got to, you know, you, you got a chef that's mad at the, at the head waiter, the hostess doesn't show up. Uh, the linens, you know, guy got caught in traffic. You don't have tablecloths. I mean, you, you're, you know, it, it, you can idealize and romanticize working for yourself, but the fact is, is that you're going to be married to that business. That's what makes your business successful, is your hands-on attention that you're going to give it. It doesn't matter, really, and this is the fallacy, how many people you hire, you got to be there. Yeah. Let's, um, and, and if I can, let's just talk about this. I know Mary and Rich, you guys have always have a million questions as well but let me just ask one more question here as it relates to that business two questions actually um number one what what was the key hire as you look back in terms of who you brought on when that really enabled you to grow and then at your peak what what were you doing in terms of revenue uh i would tell you that my my key hire was our corporate attorney fellow by the name of uh, keith pritchard who later, uh, you know, uh, retired, and and we worked with his partner, a guy named Michael Kay, in uh, Silicon Valley. Um, you you got to have a really good attorney that can look at the legal ramifications of decisions you're making and lay out the probabilities and the odds. The reason I say my legal counsel was the most important is because I happened to get lucky and get attorneys who could look at something and say, yeah, we could try to sew that that contract up. 40 ways from Sunday, but they could still come back and, and wiggle out of it. Mm. So why bother? You either trust these guys or you don't trust them. And, and they were very pragmatic about things. They weren't trying to bilk me for money and more hours. They would just go, yeah, you know, there's some exposure and there's some risk, but, you know, you should be able to live with that risk. And, and I appreciated that. I appreciated their practical approach to that. And I think you got to have that kind of legal counsel right by your side. Mm-hmm. And then from a because your, your legal yeah. exposure is growing as you get bigger, right? I mean, if you were it, when when I first started out and you know signed the lease on that office, I didn't have any. What were they going to sue me for? My desk? Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, you know, you don't have any assets. But as you get larger and larger, you're more of a target, and that's just a reality. Yeah. And then revenue. Revenue. We were at about sixty million uh, capitalized billings. Mm-hmm. I think we were the second largest in California, second largest uh, technology marketing firm in California for yeah. about two or three years. Yeah, and so then from a valuation standpoint, they take the gross revenue, and is it based on how how was the valuation calculated when when you? Oh uh, boy, you that's a good question. They had J. Walter Thompson had a you know a, a formula that you'd have to be a physicist to figure out. Mm. You know, at the end of the day, because it's a services company, right? So when it's a services company, and, and by the way, this is before EBITDA and all of that stuff came out, right? So everybody had their own little formulation at the time. Uh, in terms of uh, their formulation, it was impossible to figure out. So we had to come up with our own. 
Yeah. All right. Let me, uh, let me take it over based on revenue history and revenue forecasting. Yeah. Cool. You got anything? Okay. So Rebecca, I definitely have, I have so many questions, but I'm going to start kind of going back a little bit. You're in your office. You said you weren't sure what you're going to do yet. You started getting phone calls. You, you were ahead of your time, obviously, but you were already successful with products. What was it, you know, kind of tapping into your, on your about page, you're saying you're futurist and you have uh, like a sociobiologist. So what was it? Was it a combination of the phone calls and they just said, we'll pay you to do this? Or did you see something coming at the same time? How did you see what you should focus on? Because a lot of entrepreneurs, they're getting started. To your point, they'll say, oh, I want to open a restaurant. And they, they don't think of all the things that could be you know, problems within that. Since you were going into something with this new thing, was the internet even really a figment of anyone's imagination at that time? Like, what did you see that got you start to focus on that actual, we're going to focus on digital and help people sell products? Well, um, you know, if you're developing something that already exists and, and you can't differentiate yourself, you know, like, let's say, uh, you, you come up with a, a really tasty new, um, you know, carbonated soda. Well, there's a lot of sodas out in the market and, and uh, you know, yours might have a little bent on it. Maybe it's a, has more caffeine in it. Maybe it tastes better. Maybe it's all made out of all organic ingredients. Maybe you've got some spin on it, but you're just walking right into competition. And, and the minute you walk into a crowded market, you better have deep pockets. Right, because uh, when when the consumer believes that something's at parity, when they don't really know what the substantial differentiation is, they're not willing to pay for it. They're only willing to pay for differentiation. So when products are at parity, right, the de, the de facto differentiator is price. This is really what all entrepreneurs must understand. If you're ever in a price war. It means your products have not, not been differentiated enough that anyone's willing to pay more. Mm -hmm. That's a simple fact of it, mm -hmm. right? So from my standpoint, to answer your question, I didn't want to go into a crowded market. I didn't want to differentiate myself in an existing market. I wanted to create a new market where I was the only game in town, right? And mm -hmm. if you're the only game in town, then your only mission now is education and publicity. I don't have to fight anybody else off because nobody else has got what I have. And I don't have to worry about what I charge. I can charge whatever I want to because I'm on the only game in town. Mm -hmm. What are you going to compare me to? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what specifically was that? For me, it was earlier what I said. The, the engineers, you know, Silicon Valley was started by engineers, which were not the billionaire engineers we know today. These were geeks that couldn't get dates in college. You know, I, I'm, I'm talking about people that were really scientists, right? A physicist and, and people like that. And, and, and they didn't really understand marketing. In fact, that was their weak suit. The idea that you could communicate to someone in a way that would excite them and make them and motivate them to take an action was not really their strong suit. And so when I came along as a sociobiologist that looks at human uh, uh, emotions, right, and trends, 
you know, it, it was welcome news for them. They're going, great, build a bridge between these things we're making that nobody understands and nobody knows why we need them and what they can do, you know, make a bridge for us. And, and so there was that aspect of it. And then there was this entire traditional advertising organization, you know, like the BBDOs of the world and the WPP groups and everything that were cutting and pasting things on pieces of paper, you know, and then transferring it to film. And then, you know, I mean, and, and it, it was like the revolution in the publishing industry, right? There wasn't any online books. I mean, you know, people didn't really understand where technology was going to take their business and that their business was going to completely and fundamentally change. And so I saw my niche as being that bridge. I could help people take new products to market in a new way and do it more cost effectively. So my pricing didn't even look like other ad agencies. I mean, I, I went to people and I go, I can give you a fixed price of exactly what I'm going to charge you to reach exactly this number of people. Couldn't do that before. Mm -hmm. Before you'd buy a TV ad and you hope people had their TV on at that exact second to see that 60 second ad, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And then once the 60 second ad had passed, it, that's it. You know, you're, you're out of luck. There's There was no repetition, no reuse, no no nothing. So. Uh, you know, when I saw my niche as going into a market where I was the only player, I could charge whatever I wanted to charge, I had no competition, and I could do it at a very, very low entry cost because it was a service business, so I didn't have to capitalize equipment and all that. I mean, I did later, I had to buy some pretty expensive computing equipment to be able to do, uh, you know, film for, on, uh, for print ads right there at our facility because we wanted to be able to do them right away. But we were the first to be able to send somebody their finished ad over the internet and say, hey, this is what it's going to look like. So what time frame was that? In the 90s or? Yeah, it was basically, you know, the late 80s, 90s, you know, throughout the 90s mm -hmm. when, all, when, when this advertising revolution was going on. So you had your eyes wide open, just probably a gift you have, and then you walked right into the internet in the 95, 93, 95, moving yeah, forward? Yeah, because it was, it, it was obvious. You know, you have to understand my background's in science. It was obvious that this was an enabling technology that was going to change everything, right? And so everybody was going to have to play in it. And the fact that I had some marketing background, it just made it easier for me to say, okay, you know, let's let's get out there and look at technology and see how we could leverage technology and to to make advertising a lot cheaper for people to do. Now, interestingly enough, because I was in Silicon Valley and there were so many startups. Remember, in the '80s and '90s, startups were going absolutely insane. There were you know ten every, ten new ones every day. And and what was interesting was they didn't have any money, right? Startups are short on cash, but they got stock, right? So once, once my company was solid enough, I could take risks. I could go in and take a look at a, a startup that didn't have a lot of cash, but I knew their product was likely to be a big hit, right? And then I could say, well, why don't you pay us partially in cash just to cover our costs and the rest give us some stock. And we'll work like hell to make you successful because our, otherwise our stock isn't, isn't going to be worth wallpaper. Mm. And so in a way, the marketing firm started to, to look more like a venture capital firm in a way because we were invested in our clients. And they liked that too because they were cash short. They're waiting to go through an IPO. 
and they want to feel like you know you're in the boat with them rowing to that you know to 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 uh, you know to get get over the uh, the line. You never really mentioned this phrase, but I'm hearing between the lines like you you may have almost helped them brand themselves too because you're talking yeah. about key differentiation. And I fast forward to today. And I do a lot of e-commerce. And if people go into, say, an Amazon space or a marketplace space, uh, many of those people, they're making really good money, but they don't realize how they're a race to the bottom because they're not building their brand. They don't even have their customer information other than a mailing address. Amazon keeps all that themselves. And so I, I'd be interested... One, do you think that's true? Did you help them brand themselves too? Because you kind of saw behavior, saw their product, and it, since you had an advertising company, it sounds like you had a role in that. Is that true? Or yes, absolutely. The num the num the number one differentiator is a perceived differentiator. That's the the enduring differentiator, right? That mm -hmm. you can have. So per perception is reality. You've heard people say that before. And so the perceived differentiator that is worth investing in is your brand. So do you feel that same way moving forward now? Because it seems to me more than ever, say at Amazon Alexa. More than ever. If more, it, more than ever, your brand is the most important differentiator because it allows you to command more money. I mean, bleach is bleach, but Clorox bleach, they get they they get a higher margin and, and they can charge more because of Clorox. Now it's an interesting story about Clorox. I, I think they're a great example. People don't know that Hidden Valley Ranch salad dressing is made by Clorox Corporation. What? Hmm. Hopefully there's yeah. no Clorox in it. Right. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and and Kingsford charcoal briquettes and Casey Masterpiece barbecue sauce. Interesting. By the way, of quick story. Now, now, okay, that's there's an interesting brand study, right? Because Clorox, when they first got those products, actually considered putting Clorox on there, because not because all the executives had smelled too much bleach, but but because <laughs> they, they they truly believed that the Clorox brand was so pristine that they actually did focus group studies and put Clorox on the salad dressing. To see what would happen, and and people said, "Oh, I'm not going to eat salad dressing with Clorox on it, right?" So, so sometimes your brand can work against you. In a case like that, you have to be very careful about your brand and what your brand stands for. And and all corporations, as you get large, like Clorox Corporation, you're going to begin to diversify, right? You're you're going to try to leverage your your uh, uh, your channels and so on and so forth. And you're gonna diversify, but you gotta be careful about brands, right? You know, the best thing to do is to uh, acquire products that are consistent with your brand image. But again, you know, um, any drive towards singularity is a drive toward extinction in nature. This is one of the fundamental uh, things that I teach people as they move, you know, as they their companies become larger and larger mm. is that, you want diversification and diversification is necessarily going to work against your brand if you do it right. So now you've got a brand into either individual products or set up an arm's length uh, corporation to deal with food items if you happen to be Clorox. Thank goodness they didn't come out with Clorox salad dressing. Mm -hmm. let, let, let me ask you this because mm, there, there's so many rabbit holes we can go down here with you and all this is uh, this is awesome and perfect. Did you... 
let's just close the loop before we get into where, where I think you can add so much value. I know you can add so much value to this conversation around the future and where things are headed. Let's just close the loop then on on that exit. Did your did did the exit in any way substantially change your life, or did it create any sort of new challenges that you weren't expecting? It it really did substantially change my life in my particular case because um, I, I needed to focus on my new family, you know, and mm-hmm. and that wasn't going to be possible. I was literally getting up at three o'clock in the morning and going home around eleven or twelve o'clock at night, oh, wow. and, and I I I needed to focus on my new family, and this is. This exit was timed perfectly because it allowed me the time to bond with my children and uh, and and really, you know, create a good family unit and get them off to a good start. So mm-hmm. I would say it was a blessing for me that that offer came along. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's um, let's shift gears here because it's clear that you see what so many others just cannot see, being so early as you were, and 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 you know, look, a lot of it is is. Well, some of it ties back to the proximity principle of being in the right place at the right time and being in that Northern California arena, Los Gatos, et cetera, where so much of this talk was even going on. I mean, before the days of Crunchbase and TechCrunch and all that, I mean, like, if you wanted to find out about something, you had to go down, you had to actually meet someone, you had to hear a conversation. So you were in those conversations. Today, it's it's unheard of for a conversation to take place in one corner of the world and not somehow reach darn near everyone else, no matter where they are, regardless of economics, regardless of socioeconomic status, regardless, just as long as they have access to the internet, they can get access to those conversations. So now that so many of us have access to all of the same information, it kind of begs the question of where the real opportunities are, because you can see this clear as day. And I'm sure, as you said, just the fact that, you know, how can you not see this? Like everything's going to be delivered by drone. Like what's going to happen here in the future is so obvious to you. We all have access to that same information, but we don't all process it in the same way. So you're really, and, and, and rightly so, you know, positioned yourself. And, and I guess, I don't know if this was a, a self-made moniker or uh, if this was something that someone uh, just uh, sort of cast upon you in terms of being a futurist and being able to have the ability to see what's next, what if you had to put yourself back in the chair of the late 80s and the early 90s when you saw just as crystal clear as you possibly could what is going to happen in terms of the Internet and where things are going, if you're in that same seat now and you're looking at the 2020s and the 2030s and so on, what do you see as just the, the most blatant opportunity uh, that so many of us are evidently are just missing, even though we have all have access to the same information, we can look up anything we want now. Where is that opportunity as you see it? Well, you know, I think we're, we're going through a bit of a renaissance that's going to happen as a result of moving from 4G to 5G. Everybody's probably, you know, going. Can you just explain what that means though, 4G versus 5G? Because I don't think that everybody clearly understands the difference. Well, and there's also a lot of signs in my neighborhood that they're like, no 5G. No 5G, right? Yeah, I saw some of those. Well, it's interesting. I just I just sat on a panel for the New York Times. Uh, I think people can go to Times Talks, and and if they're interested, there's a really interesting panel. Uh, the mayor of San Jose, uh, who's trying to implement 5G, um, somewhat I, I have to say, somewhat successfully, not entirely. Um, 
and a technical guy and, a, and a, one of the uh, vice presidents from Waze uh, was there also. And, and I was there to talk about it as well. So, so uh, when, when we went from 3G to 4G, 3, 3G effectively was for texting. That's, that's the cellular network that we all use. And then, it, you know, in those days, uh, it was really hard to get video without buffering and buffering and buffering. Everybody remembers that. And then when we went to 4G, it was technically designed to allow streaming video uninterrupted. We're getting ready now to make a pretty giant leap into 5G. And what 5G is designed to do is to allow uh, machines to talk directly to other machines. That's, that's basically its, uh, its primary function. It's uh, going to be considerably faster. Uh, it won't be congested. Um, it's uh, uh, it, instead of 100,000 devices being able to talk to one another in a, a, a square kilometer, it'll allow a million devices to talk to each other. So what will happen is these autonomous cars, just as an example, one example, these autonomous cars will not be going back to some central base station or, or command control. They'll be talking to each other. They'll be saying, hey, you know, I'm, I'm pretty close to your left-hand side. I'm going to make a right-hand turn and so on and so forth. And hey, by the way, there's traffic going down First Street. So maybe you want to take a detour around this way. And they're all going to be talking to each other and communicating to each other in real time. And that's a massive amount of data that has to be uh, uh, processed and, and dealt with. Uh, mm -hmm. And so that's what 5G is. So 5G is going to lay the basis for a whole uh, plethora of new applications that we can't even imagine today. It's an enabling technology similar to the internet, which is going to, going to allow all machines, anything that's digital to talk to anything else that's digital without you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Wade, I think you- uh, Yeah, you I just wanted to that. throw in, I, I normally don't jump into this, but it's something I've been following. And so just be aware that the brouhaha is all about wavelengths. Right, so I'm just sharing yeah, this little correct. bit of yeah, information. Yeah, yes, yes, we should talk about that. So, yeah, so it, do you, do you want to just let them know the difference? Yeah, wait, it relies on millimeter waves, right? And the problem with millimeter waves is you have to have an antenna every 200 to 1,000 feet. Oh, wow. So that's millions and millions of antennas, right, all talking to each other to get you the data. Um, and, uh, and, and this is the big problem, is who's going to fund the infrastructure? Now, in the United States, uh, we're naively hoping that carriers like Verizon and AT&T are going to uh, pony up $400 billion to get these antennas up in, in major cities. Uh, but everybody that's moved forward on 5G uh, in an aggressive way in China, Switzerland, South Korea, it's a government-funded infrastructure, and rightly so, because, you know, when it talks, when you talk about a network like that, you're really talking about uh, national security. Mm -hmm. And you don't really want to hand that over to Verizon to protect all your data, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and your grid system and so on and so forth. So, and and uh, is my understanding correct that they're looking at possibly changing the wavelength to, to uh, provide a longer distance and less interference? Uh, can you you know, comment, right? I, I guess the main point yeah, I'm wanting yeah. to make that's, is that's, they're that's still working true. out the technology. So some of these protests may be for not if they modify the wavelength technology. Well, to your point, Wade, there hasn't been a single study done, right, on millimeter waves and human physiology. 
or the environment. We don't really know what happens when we start bombarding people with these millimeter waves. And I don't want to sound uh, histrionic. You know, there was someone in the audience of the Times talk that, you know, kind of went crazy on me. And I was going, look, I, I'm not a crazy person, but I, I really think you, you want to study these things before you implement them. There's 180 scientists and doctors in Europe that have signed a, a petition to ask for a moratorium on the build out of 5G just for six months so they could study it and have some confidence that it's not going to do anything to human health. Mm -hmm. um, but to your point, Wade, you know, millimeters, millimeter waves have some problems. They have trouble going through some walls. Uh, they get interrupted by humans, trees, even rain, heavy rain can, can interrupt them. So, you know, uh, when it comes to like an autonomous car, you don't want to have an interruption as the car is going 60 miles an hour, all of a sudden it loses communication. That's, that's not good. That'd be bad. Yeah, 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 that'd be bad. Yeah. So, so let me ask you a question then. So, I I invested. You know, I figured one of these companies, Lyft or Uber. You know, one one of these companies has to be like the next the next Apple, right? I mean, like there 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 has to be a, a huge this movement towards autonomous cars, right? I mean, like we all know that, or not we all know, but let me at least say that my prediction, based on the information that I have read is that as far as those types of companies are concerned, their move is towards autonomous cars. So the actual drivers now who take you from point A to point B will be eliminated as their fleet of autonomous cars takes over. So when Uber and Lyft, you, you, you call a car, then it's going to be a driverless vehicle. It'll pick you up. It'll take you. So the move is into these these vehicles. And so as I look at that, I go, wow, that's that's got to be a huge opportunity. So I invested in Lyft thinking – you know, let me throw some money at this thing. I think it's their stock is getting hit now, but I think as the autonomous cars hit the road and their fleet gets replaced in terms of the people who own the cars and drive the cars by these autonomous vehicles, I think it's a, a good long-term investment. What What's your take on, because we know autonomous cars are coming. I mean, by some estimates, 35% of the cars on the road in the next uh, 10 years will be autonomous cars. Some people actually have said even more than that. What, what's your take in general on an investment in in Uber or a Lyft in autonomous cars? And, and I think autonomous cars are the issue. Okay. Uh, I think that, that autonomous cars are going to make it really easy for people to pick up a, a, a ride. And and so what does that mean? That means there'll be more cars mm -hmm. on the freeway, and that means more traffic. So if I were making an investment right now, I'd be making an investment in ways. Because the goal of Waze is to eliminate traffic. Mm. And that's really, I mean, if you think about it, if autonomous cars go into single human being vehicles and everybody's taking them everywhere, imagine the jam up you're going to be experiencing. You know, the traffic problems we have now are nothing compared to autonomous vehicles in full, you know, in, in full mode. Mm. So, so I, you know, what Waze is working on is they're not working on autonomous vehicles. They're working on how to remove traffic and congestion. And they're looking at the intersection between technology and human behavior. You know, how to educate people to use autonomous cars in a way that won't make it horrible mm -hmm. on the road. Mm -hmm. and, and so I, I really like their approach, you know, because I, I think that they're looking down the road to well, what happens when autonomous cars are just all over the place and so easy to use and get cheaper, cheaper. Interesting. I, I love Waze too, in a couple of different reasons, because I also think they're a good platform for almost like back to your original one where, with advertising along the way. Oh, you're going, 
this direction to that game. You like this type food. This type food is on the way to that event. Why don't you stop here? Meanwhile, they're changing traffic too at the same time. There's, you know, with all those connections going on, it's going to take a while. But, you know, I think you can also short a lot of other things too, like accidents. I think like insurance companies, what's going to happen with insurance companies? Like mm. what's going to happen with body shops? Like, is it going to be more accidents? It's going to be less accidents. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting though, but I love, I love ways as well. Yeah. I, I think what ways is trying to do is to make your travel as efficient as possible. And I think that, you know, autonomous cars may add to inefficiency in the long run because of gridlock and Waze is trying to counteract that. And so I think that rather than putting a bet on whether it's going to be Lyft or Uber, I'd rather go on the fact that Waze really literally has no competition for where they are right now. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so I, I, I would say they're the lead horse. Now, will they stay there? Don't know. Uh, and, uh, and I think with 5G autonomous cars, you'll see more of them, more and more of them because they're waiting. They, they, they can't run on 4G the way that they need to, they need 5G in order to be more effective. Yeah. So there's, so there's a couple of things that come up. So number one, you, you would probably think that any companies that are in, 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 let me see if I can phrase this correctly. The companies that are involved with the manufacturing components of 5G would probably be a fairly safe bet as well. Not that we're giving stock advice here, folks, but, you know, in terms of if you're if you're in the world of actually creating sort of the widget, if you will, that runs this new network, that seems to be a, a fairly safe opportunity from, from an investment standpoint, because somebody's going to have to create that $400 billion in equipment and so on and so forth that's going to be uh, installed. You would, think, you would think so, but here we get into a little bit of politics because the leaders in equipment for, for 5G are Huawei, uh, who we created an embargo against because, uh, you know, they, they were state-sponsored by the Chinese government. Mm. And there were some reports that uh, they were, that the Chinese, that Huawei was... Uh, downloading information from the headquarters of the African Union where they had installed 5G oh. to the back to the Chinese government every night. Yikes. And so when they got kind of got their hands caught on delivering data back to China, uh, you know, an embargo was created. But the but the com the countries that are moving the quickest on 5G are all using Huawei uh, equipment. Mm -hmm. Is that so, W? How way, do we even spell it? Well, we've hurt ourselves in our build out. We're, we're, we're moving much slower because we won't, you know, we're, we're, we put an embargo on. A lot of people are calling Huawei basically the, uh, the Trojan horse, China's mm -hmm. Trojan horse. So, They've got the best equipment for 5G. Everybody's installing it everywhere. And, uh, you know, uh, China can get a hold of your data whenever they want. To. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, Huawei is HW, uh, just to mention yeah. that. But, um, and I'm sorry to be interrupting, but this is something I've been trying to keep a track on. Um, what do you think about America competing with China for AI if the government isn't making investments to support our private industry? Well, yeah, we're, get, we're kind of, you know, uh, at this point right now where, we have to look back over history and remember that the most significant uh, technological breakthroughs always came out of government research in the United States. You know, the, the internet, uh, I know it, 
Al Gore thinks he invented it, <laughs> but it was part of a DARPA defense program, and that's that's where it came from. Uh, pretty 3D printing, uh, you know, uh, many of the chip innovations were were designed by you know are sponsored by the government, and then later went commercial. So. Uh, to, to say that the United States is not investing in, in uh, technological research is really, um, uh, I, I think it glosses over the fact that we do, but we do it in this indirect kind of funky way, and we, we do it through defense. defense con de the Defense Department has a very, very large budget, as we know, and then they contract out for things to be done, or NASA. NASA contracts for things that they need in outer space. And then eventually those kind of in an indirect way worm their way into commercial applications, mm -hmm. right? Whereas the Chinese are very direct. They will state sponsor uh, uh, private companies and share in the revenues and so on and so forth. And that's true also in North and South Korea as well. And so we kind of hurt ourselves by not, by, by somehow, uh, the government staying out of primary research. I think that that one of the best things that we could do is really um, start funding uh, fundamental primary research um, mm -hmm. because we're we're in a bit of a pickle where five G is concerned because the best equipment uh, in the world and the most readily available equipment in the world uh, we can't buy and we can't use, and the rest of the world is, yeah. including Canada. Yeah. Let me let me ask you this because we're gonna we're gonna have to let you go here uh, shortly. But let me just ask you this: so, in terms of your future family stuff, it seems like that's probably. I mean, the kids are probably older now, so now you're back focused on on whatever's next for you. So, what 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 is next right now for Rebecca Costa? Well, right now uh, we're doing a lot. I, I have a, a Cracker Jack team here, and I started another company a couple of years ago. And uh, what we're doing is we're working with corporations, either startups or larger uh, global corporations to help them identify the technologies mm -hmm. that they need to prepare for. Mm -hmm. And then to match them with the right companies, whether they're startups or small groups uh, that have patents that are buried in universities or whatever, we, we go and identify those, uh, those, those groups and those companies that it can help them accelerate their innovation. Because this idea that you're going to do everything in-house, we know that that's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. And you can see that acquisitions are the way to stimulate and make sure that you stay ahead in terms of innovation by the number of acquisitions that Google and Facebook and J&J &J do. Yeah. You know, that's the way they stay ahead. So, uh, but there has to be somebody that can go out and vet these technologies. And, uh, and so that's what we're doing now. Gotcha. And if people want more information uh, about you, where are the best places for them to go? They can go to RebeccaCosta.com. Yeah. Visit yeah. our keep, website. Keep it simple. All right, Rebecca, we're going to let you jump. We're going to continue the conversation here on Beyond Eight Figures. And so just uh, can't thank you enough for, for taking oh, the time you. to hang out with us today. And, uh, and wait, let's go ahead and let... Uh, Rebecca, go, and uh, and we will continue the conversation here. So, Rich, and thank you, uh, thank you so thank much, you. Rebecca. Great, great having you on here. So, uh, let's. Uh, I mean, first and foremost, you know, I know we don't do a lot of predicting, and we're not saying by any stretch, you know, that this is stock advice, and we're not saying, you know, this is what you should invest in, and so on. But it's not every day you have a, a, a futurist on. 
to be able to share where she kind of thinks the the puck is is headed there. So what uh, – well, first and foremost, let me just ask you this. What was your biggest takeaway as far as uh, the conversation is concerned with uh, with Rebecca? Richie, I guess I can start with you there. I think part of it was looking for what's obvious in human behavior and what people are actually doing and what they're – how easy it is to miss – when it appears to just be parlor tricks. Mm-hmm. And I'll use as an example, voice. You know my love of voice, and I don't just mean people talking. Yeah. I mean specifically the Alexa, the Google. We're, like, we're coming up on three years in a row now. They're the number one sellers at Christmas. Like That's not a small number either. Yeah. And they're all coming in. How many searches, even how people are you know, using voice to text, and I don't mean using the voicemail, but... You know, why are you sitting there still using your thumbs? So to me, it even though she didn't mention voice, if we'd had more time, she probably would have. Yeah. Um, I think it's trusting enough in your own self when you can see human behavior, even if it appears to be silly little things like play music, check the weather at mm-hmm. the beginning, because mm-hmm. it's really easy to miss it when it's just those small things. Eh, it's just trivial. It's trivial. It's trivial. It was trivial that Uber was going to drive a car and a cab wasn't going to, like, why would I want someone who's never done this before to drive me? Yeah. It seemed trivial. And it seemed unsafe and the whole and nine, right? Yeah. yeah. Got it. Got it. Mary, biggest uh, take away from the conversation with Rebecca there? Um, I kind of alluded to it when I was talking to her that funny people see funny. Mm. And she has the vision to like, duh, this is right in front of us people. Mm -hmm. And I wish she gave more secrets. Like, you know, like we want more. Yeah. Go for this stock. I mean, it was great that she said not Uber and Lyft, but Waze. Mm -hmm. No, it's not. I have money and Lyft. (laughs) Get it out. Yeah, I know. Get it out. Always go go for the number one player. Always go for the number one. Yeah. Yeah. And seeing that there's some people (laughs) don't have competition. Yeah. But she, does research. I mean, she studied this, so it would take more of an effort on our part. Mm-hmm. And now I understand why there's no all those five G signs in my neighborhood because I didn't realize that they had to have so many mm-hmm. of those antennas. Don't worry, your church will make more money. That's where they're all going. Just put them all, all in the churches. churches. All in the churches. That's yeah. funny. I'll put them on my churches roof. and palm trees in California. That'll be the that'll be yeah right. That's put them on your roof, right? I mean, might as well. They're gonna have to go somewhere. Yeah. The the uh, the conversation around uh, around perceived differentiation i thought was yeah. uh, was really powerful as well not that you have to necessarily do something that's apples and oranges above what everybody else is doing you just have to put it in, uh, out in a way where that differentiation that differentiator is uh, is perceived to put you in uh, in in the conversation as the only one in that game well and you know the way she phrased it why create a product that you're walking straight into competition mm. yeah yeah, it kind of it and as old school versus new school as this all is with where Rebecca is in the conversation, that whole new school and AI and so on and so forth. Yeah, with my wife and getting her funeral home opened, right, which will take a while now, but that's looks like that's moving forward as as we were hoping it would. Very old school business, right certainly a service business what do you do to to really differentiate 
that business, so it becomes the only choice. In and I don't want to say it's a crowded market, but there are obviously other choices. That's even overrated. How so? Uh, differentiated. I guarantee you, if we'd have sat there and talked to her longer, that it's not like it's got to be some big crazy. What's so much different about Casper mattress? Mm. How well, it comes in a box and it blows up when you get it. Yeah, but I mean, is it like there's other ones that do that. I, we got ours Purple. like five years, Purple, ago, sure. yep. ten years ago at Costco. One of those did that. You know what I mean? One so, of those foam blow up mattresses. Yeah, yeah. It, it almost to me goes back to the we used. It used to be you're innocent till proven guilty, mm. or excuse me. Yeah. Guilty. Yeah, yeah. It should be innocent until in, proven it, it guilty. It used to be innocent until proven guilty. Now it's guilty till proven innocent. Now forget about court of law meaning of that, but it's just like if you just state something now and you hold your ground long enough stating that thing and you mm-hmm. say it enough consistently, times. Consistently, yeah. Consistently, mm-hmm. that in and of itself can somehow be your differentiator sometimes. Mm-hmm. No, now you just lost my thought. Oh, for you, for yes, the funeral, for the funeral home. home. Yes, I have gone to many, many, many funerals. Yes. And the decor, the way somebody who's grieving walks in, and I've never seen the receiving room or where the casket is or the memorial is to have any, any, like, for the love of God, give me something cheerful in this room. Mm. The mm-hmm. rooms take the people down. Mm-hmm. They've got horrible carpet, horrible thick drapes, yeah. horrible de- colors like burgundy. So that's not the look we're going for? <laughs> that is not the look you're going for. And I can talk to your so, wife and just So what's toss- the marketing material? Yeah. Uh, Come in. It's got to be better than what... Well, you know, I mean, oh, your loved one deserves better. Yes. Right? I mean, something. And the something. people grieving, they like... I just want to get out of here. It's yeah. really dark and dank and depressing. Yeah. I hear you. I, I hear you 100%. And I think that's... That's uh, a differentiator. That's the main... Exactly. And I think that is the main takeaway here is... And to, to that point, Richie, I mean, you don't have to do something that is like doing something necessarily that is so wild, like that's never been done before, but doing something in your own unique way that is marketable and is appealing, I think could be a differentiator enough. All right, we're going to we're gonna have to jump here, folks, and really do appreciate you tuning in to today's episode of Beyond Eight Figures for Mary Goulet and for Richie Ote, White Wade, Kelly Pelker. I am Steve Olsher, and we will talk to you guys next time here on Beyond Eight Figures. Take care, everybody.